Welcome to episode two of Jesse's Message, Survivors Empowered, a conversation with Sandy and Lonnie Phillips. At the end of episode one, I said the only satisfaction would be having our loved ones back, me having my dad and you having Jesse. What was Jesse like? Well, um, incredible. She was a fiery redhead, funny. She was and quick-witted and sarcastic. In fact, her her Twitter underneath her bio would say, in, in her bio, it would say, uh, sass, class, and a little bit of crass. And it was three words, all rhyming, and absolutely summed her up. Um, she could she could get down with the boys and talk as dirty as they did. She was a hockey journalist, and she was sassy, and she was um, she was just she was delightful. She was also a pain in the tuchus sometimes. So well, my, my last name is Phillips, and hers is Gowie. So by that you can tell, uh, you know, I didn't meet Jessie until she was like five years old. We uh, we became instant. Uh, we made a connection. Uh, she was not an easy child, as your mother will tell you. Uh, you know, <laughs> when you uh, when you go from that age and you somebody comes into your life, you, you never know if it's going to be good or bad. But yeah. uh, Jessie was uh, she was my bud. She called me her Bubba, uh-huh. and uh, and you called her Babette. Oh, how did she do in school? What was she like as a student? Uh, smart as a whip. Uh, I remember I got a, a, a note from the teacher that said, I need to talk with you about Jessie. You know, Jessie is so smart and she's she passes every. But I think it was 30 percent of the 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 homework. Uh, it, 30 percent of the grade was she wouldn't turn in her homework, turning in homework to do it. But she that wouldn't turn it familiar. in. Yeah, that was Jessie. She would do the homework. She just wouldn't t- turn it in. So we didn't mention that part. Yeah. Too. She had ADHD, yeah, she had ADHD. <laughs> along with her brother, well, who also had it. <laughs> yep. It was a challenge. But you know what? It was a wonderful challenge. It, it, yeah. Looking back on it, of course, when you're living through it, it's not much fun. Right. But uh, right. You know, looking back on it, it, it was uh, it was an education for both of us, and and to see both of my children grow up into really fine human beings and find their passion in their work life. You know, what a lovely thing! And you know, it, the fact that she didn't get to fulfill hers is will always be heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Absolutely. What age was she when she had ambitions about doing broadcast journalism? Was that something she discovered in college or was it before that? It was actually in her senior year of high school. She was dating a a young man whose family loved sports. And Lonnie and I are not sports people at all. So she was over at his house a lot and they were always watching some kind of sport or another and uh, I think they went to a local hockey game one evening and she was hooked it was like that was because it was so fast moving yeah and um, she got hooked the first first game and she liked it because it was rough and tumble rough tumble and fast Mm -hmm. and um, she she just that was it for her it was like I think I want to be a sports journalist and was like, well, go for it, baby. I believe I've told you this one other time, Sandy, but I also wanted to be in broadcast journalism. And when I got accepted to Ithaca College, I was accepted to the Park School of Communications to do 
broadcast journalism. And unfortunately, this was only six months after my dad had been killed that I started classes. And the very first day of my first class was a journalism 101 class. And the professor got up and said, our first project is going to be to investigate a homicide. And I said, oh my God way too soon I started sweating and I went to his office afterwards and I kind of explained and he was like you need to change your major then this is journalism baby and I changed my major oh had to I didn't have I didn't know what else to do you know this that for me was one of the you know sort of earlier aspects of collateral damage that this trauma caused derailed my dreams and career path I think that's something that most people who haven't been a survivor of something like this just don't understand. That is a perfect example of the callousness of our society. Um, yeah. I remember one of the families from Sandy Hook, young people um, that went into a, a college class and um, the same thing happened. It was basically, we're going to be studying the Sandy Hook shooting. And he, he was like, uh excuse me uh wow and, and literally almost passed out yeah. in class yep because of the anxiety it created yeah he walked out of the class came back to the professor told him this the situation and fortunately he had a compassionate professor and it's usually like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and right. move on i was so naive even still after what I had experienced with dealing with a stalker and a homicide and an incompetent police department and other things that happened in the immediate aftermath. I, I, but I still, still was expecting people to have a basic level of decency. And I found out so many times they just don't. And they don't. I grew up really sort of optimistic and sunny and had this sort of rosy colored view of the world and it took forever to break me of that way of seeing things because I just it was like letting go of the last piece of who I was to find Ooh, that's that's um, a great way of putting it you know to I, I I had to give up my family as it existed I had to give up my mother the way that she had been she was a different person now. My sisters yeah. were different. Yep. My dreams were different. Everything was different. And it was like, I even had to let go of the innate qualities that made me me in order to get through this. And you've been raised to believe that most people are good. And, you know, if you're a good person, good things will happen. If you work hard, things, you know, good things will come to you, all that kind of stuff. And, and when you're a, a gun violence survivor, um, you find out that that's not necessarily true, number one. And you you do look at the world so differently. I used to be a very, very friendly, outgoing person. And I still am with my safety net of people. Right. When I'm around other survivors, when I'm around the gun violence prevention movement, and when I'm around old, trusted friends, I'm fine. But we, you know, we're, we're living in RV parks all across the country. I never talk to anyone around me. I never make eye contact with them. I, I just kind of, we stay to ourselves. Uh, we make a little outdoor area everywhere we go. That is kind of my peaceful place, my nature place. Um, and the rest of it, it, it I may say hello 
if I'm forced to, not to be rude, but otherwise, yeah, I, I don't I don't trust anyone anymore. And I think that's been very hard for a lot of survivors to to give up on the fact that you feel safe in this world when you when you can't. You cannot feel safe in this world. I, I, I was 17. So even more so than an adult who's had yes. years of experiencing, yes. you know, the breakdown of a relationship or a betrayal. I was a child yep. and never could have imagined that my introduction to adulthood would be this. No. And because I was still in that sheltered environment of living with my parents and them taking care of everything, and I didn't have the experience of adult responsibilities and adult disappointments, it was even more difficult for yeah. me to make that transition from sort of looking upon the world as a safe place to, yeah. wow, this place isn't safe at all. Yeah. An awful lot of things were lost. I even lost the only best friend I'd ever had. Well, she was more like a sister to my twin and me, but I thought that friendship was for a lifetime. I never imagined anything could ever break it, but that relationship could not survive this. And it was heartbreaking, you know? Yes. She was a part of my identity and I had to lose and let go of that as well. Uh, well, you, you were you were in a, 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 a position where you lost your grounding again. You lost the, the man that you had always been able to count on. Yep. You lost your mother who changed. Um, so you, you weren't grounded there anymore. And then you lose the love and support of your best friend who's no longer there. It's affected my willingness to get into new relationships and new friendships. And then, and then people had the nerve to say to you, well, you've changed so much. You're not the same person. Uh, You're damn right. I'm not, <laughs> you can't be, how can you be the same person after what you've gone through? My, my, I say my former best friend, my friend of uh, almost 50 years said that to me. It was like, well, no, I'm not. And I'm never going to be that person again. And if you can't value the person that I have become and still have, love in your heart for me then okay bye Lonnie Lonnie tell them the story about you and your brother well I can tell that story but I'd rather tell the story about I understand Amber exactly how you feel because I watched my wife go through losing her best friend it was a shock I mean uh, we were camped out in their driveway in our trailer and we were thought we were going to be there for oh, probably three weeks or so but uh, her best friend got tired of us uh, quicker than that <laughs> And uh, we found out that there were a lot of intervening things that Sandy really had nothing to do with. And the fact that her best friend had already entered into a different world and our world made her world uncomfortable. So the only way she could deal with that was to write Sandy a letter and tell her, you know, how she was different. And it was like reading a letter from a stranger. Uh, and in that instant, after reading the letter, actually, she read the letter to Sandy. Uh, Sandy was sitting there listening to her. She wanted, I guess she just didn't know what words. She wanted to write them down and make sure she didn't miss anything. But the point is, she started leaving Sandy long before that. She came to Jesse's memorial and organized everything, brought her husband. He's a great guy. They were, went through us went with that memorial. That's how it wasn't even a year later. Unbelievable. She changed more than you almost, it sounds like. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. When she was reading the letter and I was listening to it, probably a third of the way through it, I went, if I was meeting this person for the first time, would I like her? <laughs> and my answer was, not only no, but hell no. 
This is a very bitter, nasty person. It's like, okay, then we're done. And, you know, I'll always have a, a soft place in my, I will always love you as the person that you were when we were close. But, right. you know, you don't want that anymore. Bye-bye. Well, let me tell you, at that time in Sandy's life, it was very, very difficult to overcome that. It hurt her badly. Yeah. And she didn't get over it overnight. She left, no. lost a lot of sleep over that. I'm still not completely over the loss of the only best friend I had from ages 5 to 20. So that's yep. collateral damage of the collateral damage. It just keeps piling on. Yes, but absolutely. in a sense, we have met so many other friends that fill that void over and above what she lost. So that's, that's the good side of it. Absolutely. What, what we have found, uh, truly found, is that the people that are in our world now are better people. They're good, solid, caring people. And that's, that's who we thought our other friends were. Absolutely. Speaking of good things happening, such as you finding better people to fill that void, could you two talk about some of the other quote-unquote hidden gifts that reveal themselves after you experience a loss and a trauma like this? Because even though that sounds odd, that there are gifts in it, as a survivor myself, I know there are. I'd like to hear what some of those are for you. Oh, there's so many. Um, you say you're going to ask someone whose daughter was murdered what the hidden gifts are in that loss. And they go, oh, God, don't ask her that. <laughs> no, I think but, actually, Amber, I, I applaud you for even thinking of asking that question because it makes survivors really think about as awful as things have been and what would or could break a lot of people yep. this hasn't and why it hasn't is because there have been so many of those hidden gifts when we were almost homeless and we had no money and we were living in an itty bitty uh used trailer i think it was was it 26 feet honey 26 feet uh <laughs> which is a small space to live in, yeah. uh, to say the least. But we were given a place to live for free. We could park on her property for free. There were many a time that she would you know, fix dinner for us and invite us over. When we left there and we had to come to California for some things, Holly Dexter and her husband Troy opened their home to us. And with the quote unquote, you can stay here as long as you need. And we didn't, of course, take advantage of that, but we were there quite a while and always with love and graciousness. And so that, I mean, we, we barely knew them at that point. And now they're, they're, they're family. I think mindfulness has helped both of us. Here's another real gift. This whole thing has brought we already had a, a strong marriage and a strong relationship, but this has glued the two of us all the way. That's That's been a, a real gift through this. That's been a good thing. But I think, I think we're both surprised at the strength that we have. I think we have both been able to identify the struggles that we have uh, and things build up and become... Uh, I snap at each other about or fight over or we're much, I think we're just more conducive to being able to sit down and go, okay, this is 
I'm feeling, and this is why I'm feeling it. Well, when, when this happened to us, of course, we had completely different lives. And after that was over, Sandy had just gotten a new job with the state of Texas uh, in tourism. And I had my own business for 20 years, so I was comfortable. But when this happened to us, she couldn't do that job any longer. And my job then was to take care of her. And because she was different woman, different person. And uh, that turned me into something that I wasn't. So fortunately for us, it turned out, we thought it was fortunately, we got a job with uh, the Brady campaign. They offered us uh, both positions there and we stayed there for almost two years. But we ran into a problem with that organization. They didn't think like we did. Uh, that's the one we got involved in a lawsuit with. So we are now in a position that we've didn't really fight for or ask for, but this is where we gravitated to. This is where our lives just ended up. And we did it because we didn't want Jesse's life to be for naught. That right. He had to stand for something. And and uh, she had, to, her death had to help save other people. And that's really, that's the drive. That's where we are. And that's, as we found out, not all survivors go there. As a matter of fact, there's, you know, most of them withdraw totally, uh, but that's not the path that we chose. They either withdraw or burn out. Mm -hmm. And we tell our, our new survivor families that, you know, hey, give yourself time, uh, give yourself breaks along the way. Um, because if you want to really make a difference, this is a long slog unfortunately. Yep. And it's a long slog because our politicians aren't being held accountable and our GVP groups aren't being held accountable, quite frankly. So it's up to us to hold each other. I keep telling Lonnie, I said, I think we need an ethics committee. <laughs> so so we know that we're really doing the right thing at the right time. And I, I told someone today, if I hear one more person tell me low-hanging fruit, mm. we're going to go for the low-hanging fruit or we're not going to spend our political capital when I know the NRA never goes for the low-hanging fruit and is never afraid of paying their political capital or spending it. Yeah. Um, it it's like, no, no, no. I don't want, I, not only do I not want to hear it, it's not necessary. Right. We should be all in, all the way, fighting for this every single day and not caring about our political capital, we should be getting the job done. All survivors just want to see something happen. And that's why the the, the settlement with Sandy Hook has encouraged yep. so many of us. It's sure. like, it's not about the money. It's about the win and about finding a way forward when nobody else has been able to do it. And here's this lawyer who isn't working for a GVP organization that goes out and says, I I'm going to, I'm going to attempt this. Uh, even though you're, you're telling me I shouldn't, I'm going to go out and do it. And he did it. Yes. That is a huge moment for the gun violence prevention movement. We needed that injection of hope in order to keep fighting. Exactly. Speaking of hope, Tell me about the journey you two are embarking on over the next year. This next year, um, the Honor With Action Tour actually kicked off this last weekend, uh, and we will be traveling to 20 states and 22 cities 
may end up more than that by the time this is all finished. But the plan right now is 20 states, 22 cities, where we'll be holding different kinds of events at each place. We're working with grassroots organizations that are on the ground in different cities and saying, you plan the event, we'll be there to talk about the national issue of gun violence talk about the needs for survivors, uh, talk about the mindfulness class, of course, and the toolkit for survivors, and then support you any way that you would like. So in some of these places, we might have an art exhibit of some sort. In others, it might be a uh, panel discussion. In others, it might be a rally of some sort. But it's, it's going to be different every city, uh, and we're looking forward to it, again, because we want to start connecting these grassroots organizations with one another. And that doesn't mean that the, the other grassroots organizations, the bigs, Brady chapters are always welcome, so are mom chapters. Anybody that wants to show up is fine, but we want to start uh, looking at a different audience and that includes AG offices and law enforcement, of course, which we've always tried to get involved, but at a different, a different way. Doctors and nurses, uh, teachers, teacher union. What else, baby? Anything else that you can Social think of? workers. Social yeah. workers, yes. And uh, faith groups, anybody that needs to learn more or connect more with survivors or to learn more about the movement or what they can do or how they can help. Or how we can help them. Yeah, the whole the whole purpose is to to enlighten them because I think a lot of people don't realize how gun violence is really affecting them in their work. So, you know, we know teachers are have been, oh God, they've been so abused recently between COVID and gun violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't don't know how teachers remain standing. And there's a, there's a great new teachers group that has just started in this movement from a Sandy Hook uh, survivor. Um, so wouldn't it be great to take her message along with this message and introduce everyone to her organization. So when there's a shooting at a school, a teacher who has lived or several teachers who has lived through this and they can do the same kind of outreach that we're doing to survivors, they can do to, to teachers. Oh, that's wonderful. We will be in, since this is the 10 year anniversary of Trayvon Martin shooting, Sandy Hook, uh, our shooting, the Sikh temple, the Clackamas Mall, all of those shootings happened in, in 2012. So this is the 10-year anniversary. Right. So we will be in in uh, Denver the whole month of July, which is when Jesse was killed, July 20th. And we'll be participating in not only the, the group that does this memorial every year, we'll be participating in that, but they will also be helping us with our uh, events that we will plan on doing the whole month. And one of one of the events that we're hoping to, to do right now, if we can come up with the money, it'll cost us $20,000 to bring this acting troupe over this play from the UK. And our book, uh, Tragedy in Aurora, was the inspiration for this play. And they want to come over in July and actually perform the play in the United States during the memorial uh, month. So we're hoping that we can do that. Manny Oliver, who's an artist, has said that he will come and be with us anytime we want along the way, which is nice. 
And uh, the Giffords organization has said the same thing, that they would like to plan something with us uh, along the route. So we're we're really looking forward to an interesting year on the road. So Sandy touched on it a little bit, talking about our travels. But if any of your viewers are interested in how we got here and interested in, uh, I mean, got here as a culture, as a people in this country that's got the most mass murders of any country ever had, they can read our book. It's called Tragedy in Aurora. It's uh, a story about the mass shootings in America. So it's out in paper. Did you get the paper book or the hardback? I have the hardcover. Okay. Well, I think it's out in paper book now, so it's a, it's a little cheaper. And it's a good primer on if you're just getting into this or even if you've been in this for a long, long time. There's insights in this book. It was not written by Sandy and I in particular, but the author is uh, a very well-known author writing on this subject. He has a large number of notes and bibliography, so it's a good book to to learn about where we've been and where we can go as a nation and what we have to do to get there, and it involves grassroots. It is a very well-written and well-researched book. I wish you two all the best in your Honor with Action tour. I wish I could come with you. (laughs) Um, Come on down. (laughs) I certainly hope we're going to meet in person at some point. I don't doubt that we will. Amber, it will happen. I'm absolutely beyond honored to know both of you, to speak with you to be involved in anything with you. You are remarkable people with passion, drive, very clear mission, and very clear motivation in your daughter, Jesse. Thank you. That's very lovely. And we are honored to be working with you on this podcast. And we're so sincerely proud of you, Amber. We know that this is your really your first foray into talking about what happened in your life, 27 years. And um, this to me shows other survivors how long it can take for someone to to be able to pull their life together enough to talk about um, the trauma. So kudos to you. It's never too late. No, it's never too late. It's never too late to start talking about this and and being passionate about it and doing something about it. And it's never too late to treat the trauma. Thank you for tuning in to this conversation with Sandy and Lonnie Phillips of Survivors Empowered. In the description of this episode, I will include links to the Survivor's Toolkit, where you can buy Sandy and Lonnie's book, Tragedy in Aurora, The Culture of Mass Shootings in America, and where you can get more information about the Honor with Action Tour. Please tune in next month for a whole new episode with a new survivor of violent crime.